Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lotum sees it. And now, our weekly feature on the history of our world's greatest hero, Victor Von Doom, with your host Douglas Woe, by special arrangement with Universe 1218. Thank you, Doombot J37, and welcome to the Voice of Latveria. Our guest for this very first episode is the amazing Dr. Andrea Gilroy. She's the proprietor of Books of Pictures Eugene, phenomenal comic book store, uh, has taught at a number of prestigious American universities. And uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, what we should know about you, Andrea. I came to owning a comic shop by way of academia, which is perhaps not the most common um, path, but ultimately it's just a, a multiple paths of nerddom coming together. Um, I, as you mentioned, I've taught at several universities. I did my dissertation at the University of Oregon, um, uh, where I studied comics, um, particularly interested in how comics work as a form, like what makes them really interesting. And uh, I've taught courses at the University of Oregon. I ran the University of Oregon has a comics and cartoon studies uh, minor, which I uh, ran for a year. Um, and I've also taught courses at Portland State University. Um, I've done some curating on the uh, gallery, museum, sort of ex exhibition side as well. Um, but uh, the somewhat dark joke that I made is that academic life is a bit unstable. And so I decided to get into print retail, um, <laughs> especially considering uh, I opened my store about two weeks before the pandemic started. Um, oh, but I... I still stand by that. Um, I actually, uh, as, as, as odd as this year has been, um, there is a, a stability to print retail uh, and a bit of control. And um, I was able to take a lot of my passion for comics as a form and particularly a lot of the skills and things that I like best about teaching, which was my favorite thing um, and what I really wanted to do most and why I got into academia um, about making connections with people and sharing passions uh, and taking that into a retail setting. So instead of, you know, making people write papers, I could just get to sell them books, which is a bit, people respond to that a bit better for some reason. Yeah, we've been open for a little over nine months now. And um, it's been a weird year. Uh, so we look forward to seeing what having a comic shop is like outside of a pandemic, which is uh, on the other side of things. But um, yeah, I love comics. I love comics of all kinds. I'm a big nerd for superhero comics. Um as well as, you know, people often associate academic types with maybe graphic novels or memoirs or the, the really kind of artsy comics, which are great. And I do love them as well. Um, but actually, one of the things that has always sort of driven me is um, thinking about superhero comics and um, popular culture uh, in the same ways, uh, because I think they're absolutely, um, they have the same kind of stuff in them that um, the artsy fartsy stuff does and are worth thinking about and as rewarding to think about. So, 
So that brings us to the thing that we're looking at this week, which is Dr. Doom's very first appearance, Fantastic Four, number five, cover dated July 1962. What do we make of this thing? <laughs> oh, this is, I mean, this is great. So, uh, you know, in some ways for me, the, one of the easiest claims is to, is to at least talk about uh, Jack Kirby, um, and particularly in the FF, although he's maybe not quite running on all cylinders yet. Um, Boulder Dash, well, he totally is. Eh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, uh, for me, it's when we get into maybe, I don't know, number 60 or so. Uh, how blasphemous can we be? Can I can I say right. that in fact Galactus is my favorite? But um, or will I be? Uh, will missiles be launched at us? Uh, we we have special dispensation from Doom. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, I think probably even Doom at least respects Galactus. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but in some other ways, I think in, in a lot of ways to me, this felt like the first starting in the Baxter Building with Johnny and and the thing teasing each other. Um, and that kind of familial scene in the costumes. Um, it felt like a lot of the pieces that we uh, traditionally associate with the kind of plot setup of an FF book, um, especially from this era, have finally clicked into place. Um, obviously, a lot of the pieces are laid in the previous four issues. And we see a couple, like we see Namor in the previous issue. So we're getting those those early pieces. But this felt like the first FF issue where I was like, ah, yes, everything is kind of here. Finally, uh, it's still weird. It is still, still weird. Not quite. It's still not quite the doom that we know and love. It's definitely um, not the doom that you know and love. For one thing, <laughs> there is no mention of Latveria anywhere in this. No, no. There yeah. is no mention of what makes doom doom. Yeah. There's. He's just this guy, and as we meet him, like the, the very first page, we see him. At this first image of him is extraordinary <laughs> we see him in front of a chessboard where he's moving chess pieces shaped like the fantastic four he's got a vulture sitting next to him the vulture has a name the vulture is named vulture von doom we didn't find that out for another 60 years but he is named vulture von doom uh, and there are books that say demons and science and sorcery <laughs> and we get our first look at Doom, we get our first look at his Iron Mask. And this is not the only comic that Jack Kirby drew Dr. Doom's mask in that month. The <laughs> same month as this came out, Tales of Suspense number 31 comes out. And its cover story is called The Monster in the Iron Mask. And it, there's this alien who comes to Earth and has to be driven away. And the alien has the same mask as Doom. This has never been mentioned again for reasons. <laughs> yeah, when you sent this to me, it was it was uh, very clearly either uh, you know Kirby really liked drawing his mask, or um, Stan really liked the mask and wanted to see more of it, or something. Yeah, um, but, <laughs> but it was clearly recycled. And in some ways too, um, what this really reminded me of um, was some of those splash pages from um, Golden Age Captain America, more oh. than some of his later splash pages. Um, just, you know, the villains, it's starting that starting with the villain often playing chess and all these kind of weird things. Um, it, we usually get the hero splash pages, at least from, from my memory and, and a lot of you, you know better having read them all. Perhaps I could be wrong. Um, I haven't read all of them. I've probably only read. You read know, enough. 
<laughs> to be fair, I think that's fair to there say. are a whole lot. Yeah. Um, but percentage wise, I, I, you know, I, I can't make any uh, statistical claims. Um, but when I think of a splash pages of, of like the sixties and seventies, I think of big hero splash pages or fight splash pages, not these like villain plotting splash pages. But when I think of like the first couple issues of Captain America in the golden age, I think of those, like the villains doing the plotting in those early stories. And there's one in particular that it reminds me of uh, who is playing chess and he's kind of hunched over the chess pieces. I'm trying to remember which one it is, but well, um. do you playing chess? Like this is a scene that we will see over and over again, especially uh, we will get to this in something like 20 episodes, but there's a Nick Fury story that Jim Steranko draws, which ends on a two page scene of doom and the prime mover playing chess with human looking pieces. And we just keep coming back to that particular image of doom. That's just set like right up front, right in the first story with him. Super. Well, I suppose it's the proper, it's, you know, it's, it's the intelligent game. It's a refined game. Although he doesn't quite, again, have, he's intelligent, clearly. He was mentioned as being very intelligent. The refinement hasn't quite come out yet in this story. He's just kind of super villainous. Um, what, is he even super villainous? Like, what does he even do true. that's all that bad? <laughs> it's true. We're just going to drop it. He has a time machine. He has a goddamn time machine. We just get dropped uh, in the fact that he has a time machine that works. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, like, if you're going to prove your bona fides as a genius of any kind, evil or otherwise, if you're going to pr- pr- prove that you're the greatest mind in the world, you could do worse than invent the world's first working time machine. Yeah. And uh, besides it perhaps being, you know, a little small. It can capture a few people at once but it can, it can capture a few people at once as we much later find out in squirrel girl it is not just a time machine it is a time and space machine because you know, otherwise it would drop people off somewhere in space so it goes where it needs to go it's a yeah. really well-designed time machine yeah so you know this is um ground frankly world-changing groundbreaking mm-hmm. um and reed seems to take it with a plum you'd figure he'd be a little more freaked out about it he doesn't really do anything all that bad, as far as I can tell, aside from like a, a spot of kidnapping and yeah. forcing the Fantastic Four to do his bidding. But, you know, the evil genius went too far is uh, what Reed says about him. Like, you know, he's doing experiments. Come on, you're a scientist. <laughs> it's and true. Compared to Reed, you know. Maybe his science does involve mystic rites and contacting the netherworld. And maybe he does yell silence a lot. But, you know, lots of people get to yell silence a lot. And really, he's, he may be being cut a bad break here. Fair. Uh, it is fair. Um, and, so, you know, is, is stealing from pirates really, ste- like, is, uh, is that a two wrongs make a right thing? It's, you know, um, it is a fair, a fair point. Do uh, also has cooler equipment here than we see him with later he's got the this amazing helicopter that has kind of shark jaws on it yeah it's pretty cool it's a very fast helicopter and it transports the fantastic four to his castle and his castle like is someplace that you can get to by helicopter from new york city it is much later established i think in marvel 2 and 1 than x-men is actually being somewhere in upstate new york (laughs) <laughs> like doom just happens to have a castle and that's yeah. in yeah or ithaca or thereabouts something like that uh and that's that's what he's operating out of so he's a little nuts i mean he's he's got some interesting ideas 
some of his ideas clearly work very well. Uh, he's got some nets, uh, one of which he manages to throw over an entire skyscraper. And he's got an attitude that doesn't seem like that bad a guy. That's absolutely fair. And this is also, this is, you know, almost always his, uh, his, his kind of thing. I mean, I suppose, I mean, he even has the book on demons locked, really. He's being quite responsible yep. with his dangerous tools. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the odd thing here is trying to figure out what Doom actually wants out of this story. Yes. And, and why he's going about it the way he's going about it. I mean, he kidnaps the Fantastic Four. Uh, he holds Sue hostage. He sends the other three back into the past to obtain the treasure of Blackbeard. Now, yes. why does he want the treasure of Blackbeard? Is it ever made clear here? Is it in this one that he mentions that the, the gems are... The gems have to do with uh, something Merlin enchanted. Yes, and so he might be able to use them for uh, continued research and purposes. He says, um, but not those specific. little baubles are more than what they seem. They were yes. originally the property of Merlin, the ancient magician. He gave them mystic power, the power to make their owner invincible. There you go. It sounds a lot like the Infinity Gems, doesn't it? Yeah, that does sound sort of Infinity Gem-ish. Um, we never get a good eye on them. Um, we don't really. I think there's a much later yeah, Scarlet Witch just... story and also a Dazzler story where uh, they're mentioned as being like particular gems. But uh, I, I don't think we've ever found out exactly what the deal is with those gems. With Blackbeard. Doom would not go back to get them himself. Why he would send a guy he knew in college who didn't like him very much and his friend who also didn't like him very much and the guy's girlfriend's little brother who doesn't even know him. Well, I mean, one thing is he seems to need to um, control the machine. Right. So there's that at least. Um, Understanding that they have powers and so they're going to be able to get in and out of scraps is interesting. I would say he's going to be obvious with his metallic body armor and face uh the thing is also very obvious which doesn't help at least johnny and richard can kind of hide their powers at times um the thing uh, cannot although it turns out he kind of can um but it's you know the implication is he has to control the machine because if somebody else controls it they can just leave him back there which won't help any um but yeah why them and not a trustworthy minion or something well, we don't we don't know of any minions of his at this point. It's true. He doesn't really appear to have any minions outside of. Well, he does have some Doom bots, I suppose, but they're just bots. We do mm-hmm. see the first the first Doom bot. We also see his pet tiger. Yes. Uh, we only see a little of the pet tiger, uh, and it, again, it would be many decades until we see his tiger again. Uh, his tiger turns out to be named Tiger Wild which is the same name as the nemesis of Doom 2099, who we're not going to explain just yet who Doom 2099 is. So he actually threatens the Fantastic Four with attack by a tiger, which doesn't really seem like the kind of thing that that you can intimidate them with, but apparently he sends them back into the past where they have 48 hours to retrieve the treasure of Blackbeard, just dumps them in the middle of apparently some kind of port city. Mm-hmm. What do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, so this is, um, this whole little 
jaunt to the past is pretty fascinating. Um, I mean, ultimately, the most fascinating part to me is going to be what happens with the thing. Yes. And his response here, which, uh, you know, they save the day. They manage to get the treasure. Everything's good. Um, but ultimately, one of the things that happens is this is still relatively early um, in the story. And, and uh, for those who haven't read uh, very early Fantastic Four, the thing, um, as one might expect, is... Uh, ambivalent at the very best about his uh, transformation. Um, And um, what he finds is that the pirates are pretty okay with him um, in his costume. His costume exists pretty much just, you know, a beard. In fact, he is Blackbeard. They they start saying that he's Blackbeard. Um, So wait, wait, to to, to review here, just to explain. Um, Yeah, sorry. (laughs) The, uh, the Fantastic Four, or rather the, th- the Fantastic Three, who have actually been sent to the past, go wandering around this port city for a little bit, get into a fight, they go to a bar, they get drugged at the bar and shanghaied and brought out to sea, and by that point, the thing has disguised himself with a fake beard and mustache and hat and long hair and an eye patch. And when they wake up after being shanghaied, they're on board the ship where they get into a big fight, and of course... Uh, the thing does very well for himself in the fight. And so all the pirates start calling him Blackbeard. So they went back to find the legendary treasure of Blackbeard and discovered that the thing himself was Blackbeard. Yes. Yes. Um, And yeah, does perhaps Doom understand this? Um, uh, Perhaps that's why he sends them back is because he uh, is waiting to, to create, uh, to close the continuity loop. Um, but the thing, you know, he he wants to stay. Actually, he doesn't want to go back because um, the men have accepted him, and he doesn't feel, you know, he feels like he always kind of has to hide and disguise himself. And he's wearing a disguise, but otherwise, you know, yeah, they like says, him the way he is. Here, I'm somebody. I'm a leader of men. I'm a captain. I'm the guy who started the legend of Blackbeard. The kids will read about me in school someday. I ain't giving this up. Never. They had previously replaced the treasure in the uh in the chest with chains and they say well we promised we'd bring back the trash the chest not the treasure so this is good we'll do this kind of thing that that dr doom would respond very well to yes he's like well yes well, well done and this is the, the folkloric you know be very careful what you ask for a kind of thing where you have to word your request exactly precisely right or you're going to get some sort of like monkey's paw kind of situation yeah which makes me think did he actually say treasure chest and not he doesn't. He says, "Bring the treasure of Blackbeard for me." Read the worst. So this is this is read. Okay, so the last. So he says the treasure several times, but the last thing he says is, "Bring me Blackbeard's treasure chest." Right. So, um, yeah, need to get this in writing, Doom. But you know, the thing being kind of on the cusp of not. I mean, here literally, he betrays them for at least a moment. Right. Um, but being on the cusp of betraying them or being away from uh, them in their time of need or being reluctant to kind of step into his role. Um, he ultimately becomes, I think, the most beloved for most of us member of, of the trio, of quadru- quad quad of the gang. There's a bunch of them. Um, yeah. The fantastic uh, however many. 
yes, of the of the fantastic crew. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm wearing a Thing t-shirt right now. So you oh. are. <laughs> okay. It feels appropriate. And I think actually part of this reluctance and this anger and this willingness to kind of explore the monstrosity without ever giving in to... So the Hulk is interesting. And, and in fact, they compare him to the Hulk in the, in the beginning um, of the issue, right? Because Johnny is actually reading an <laughs> issue of The Incredible Hulk, whose first issue came out just about the same time as this. So right. it's, it's like plugging the new comic in the fifth issue of the already semi, semi-established comic. But this is this kind of metatextual... Yeah. One of the one of the really fun things about Fantastic Four, yeah. uh, and particularly in this era, is that it, it's kind of always playing with um, this notion of um, existing as its own story, but also existing as a kind of wink to the audience that's also reading it. Um, but the difference between the Hulk and the Thing, like I think when a lot of people identify with the Hulk, it is that you know you kind of become this different person when you're experiencing these emotions, um, and not always, but the Hulk represents a kind of like a loss of self to that extreme emotional like outburst right when you become the monster you become the monster and which isn't always the case in the ways that Hulk is portrayed but in the more extreme versions whereas the thing is always the monster and always the outsider but is also always emotional and always like he is himself he's still Ben Grimm in this state and he also can't ever escape it he can't ever become I mean there are exceptions, there are moments, he returns to Ben Grimm and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, he is this, this character. You know, in that moment when they're all like, yes, we must come together and take on these roles. It's like, yeah, 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 this is what we have to do, I know, fine. <laughs> Instead of being like, you know, really altruistic and totally into it because, you know, he got the raw end of the deal and he was the one in the first place saying, uh, we shouldn't do this, Reed, this is not a good idea. Reed, this is not a good idea. Reed. Read, read. Uh, and then he, of course, is the one who comes out of it um, looking like a monster. And so his sort of continued difficulty with this. Um, now, the interesting thing about this and the Hulk, uh, monsters being at the center of both of them, is that when these comics start coming out, the first issues of Fantastic Four, the first issues of the Hulk, Marvel's big stock in trade is publishing monster comics. They're publishing Tales to Astonish and Tales of Suspense and Strange Tales and Journey into Mystery and Briefly Amazing Adventures. So that's like four or five monster comics every month. And these are anthology comics. They have three or four or five short stories, almost always at this point about monsters who have interesting names. Um, (laughs) There's a limited number of kind of designs that you can come up with. Kirby draws the first story in almost every issue of all of them. Ditko draws the last story in almost every issue. Don Heck draws one of the intermediary stories, and there's a bunch of people who draw the other stories. Uh, But there are certain designs that appear over and over, like a big orange rocky creature, (laughs) a big gray creature, or somebody with, like, as we said, like the metal mask. An iron mask, yeah. (laughs) This very same issue. Uh, And so Fantastic Four and the Hulk at first are both monster comics with recurring protagonists or semi-protagonists who are monsters mm-hmm. or who are monstrous. Yeah. Well, and in fact, the, the cover of the Fantastic Four really ultimately outside of um, the characters kind of uh, intervening looks like the cover of any of those um, other monster books. Yeah. Um, 
sort of outside of the intervention of of Johnny and and the slight strangeness of the other, um, you know, the slight elongation of Reed and uh, Sue turning invisible. You know, that's that's a monster book cover. I mean, it's it's the Kirby and Lee team just completely clicking. Like you can see the kind of chemistry between them, even as hard as they were sometimes pulling in opposite directions. Like <laughs> when they pulled in opposite directions, that just made it you know, like, tighter. You know? Yeah. And there, there's so much stuff happening on every page. There's little visual devices. If you look at the second page of the story, there's a thing that Kirby does a lot where he'll do a triptych on one tier. He'll do three panels. It'll be like image, closer up image, still closer up image. And he starts doing that, but he kind of shows us the building that the Fantastic Four live in and then goes up and then pulls away from it again. It's not a static inward shot. That's not the same thing that he'd already been doing in other places. Uh, just flows beautifully from bit to bit. And so on the next page, when we see like, Doom dropping his metal net over, uh, over the building, we know exactly what that building is and we know exactly where the characters are in it already. And mm-hmm. that's cool. And that's hard to pull off. And that's the kind of thing that Kirby just kind of does really offhandedly. Yeah. And I think there's something too about, you know, Lee's propensity towards kind of being cheesy and hamming it up that really works with these characters. It sometimes doesn't work with other characters as well because it's this kind of mix of a sitcom and an action show and, uh, you know, and a weird sci-fi thing. Like all of those work on the, on the on the little bit of cheese, on a little bit of ham, on the little bit of camp. Kirby uh, Lee is not the subtlest writer; he overexplains things, but that kind of works with all of those genres that are kind of working in this um, in this soup that is the Fantastic Four. Um, he is funny too. Like, yeah, uh, he is. <laughs> so he is. we'll be talking about this a little bit in the next episode. But uh, Fantastic Four number six, Doom's second appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a lot of evidence that that issue was the one issue that was scripted by Jack Kirby, with maybe a few emendations by Lee. <laughs> and uh, it's it's definitely got a distinctive voice. But one of the things that it's not is witty in the same way this is. You see. Uh, Ben yelling, listen, Doom or Goon or whatever you call yourself. That's a joke that didn't have to be there. But number one, it's funny. And n- number two, it tells us something about Ben. Like yeah. who he is and the kind of thing, the kind of jokes that he's going to make. That is a thing that Lee is amazing at. Like even when he's having people deliver these massive globs of expository dialogue, which happens a lot here. <laughs> it's always dialogue that tells us something about the speaker in the way it's phrased. Yeah. So do we want to talk a little bit about what's not here? Sure. Cause that always, that always fascinates me is cause you know, especially when reading these old characters that have been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always sort of fascinating to me what's not here and what comes up later and what doesn't come up. Um, um, until, you know, later times, um, we talked a little bit about like Latveria is not here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not in Latveria. It's not, it's just a castle. It's just a yeah. fortress. Yeah. Um, I kept waiting for something about Sue to pop up uh-huh. um, and his relationship with Sue. Not there at all. Nothing, nothing, nothing to do with Sue. We mentioned that the Doombots were there. So I was sort of surprised that the Doombot was there that early, but some of this other stuff, you know, like Latveria wasn't. 
I was a little surprised about the emphasis on magic, actually. I know that that's still a thing that gets played with, Mm -hmm. but I always think of him as a scientist who dabbles in magic. Um, But here he definitely seems to be a magician who uses some science. Um, And so that was a kind of fascinating um, early, early play. Um, He was a brilliant science student, but he was only interested in forbidden experiments. (laughs) Who forbids them? The Dean. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. The Dean of students. The Dean of students Um, who expels him uh, after he's blown his face off, like, expels him and then he goes off to Tibet and then all of a sudden we cut away from this flashback and we're we're back in back in present times. Yeah. Still seeking the secrets of black magic and sorcery. So he knows mm-hmm. all the science. Yeah. Um, but the thing that he's still seeking is all the sorcery stuff. And so, you know, there are these moments of I was like getting ready to get into some like really good like Kirby machines and stuff. I was like, mm-hmm. mm, that's my favorite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, no. Uh, you know, there are a few good moments where you can see some cool stuff in the background, but uh, um, you know, page twenty-one has a has a good moment, uh, some good good panels and stuff. But uh, um, yeah, he's almost this kind of medieval villain more than the you know they mention science a couple times, but uh, it does seem to be more of this kind of um, the Fantastic Four, the scientists versus this. Uh, uh, medieval fantasy villain um, who, you know, even actually to even, you know, further push that kind of um, difference, you know, sends them back in time. Um, yeah, he has science, but really it's it's about this kind of difference in um, uh, culture uh, and, and belief. Um, and, you know, part of that might have to do with, you know, if we were to think, you know, perhaps politically, um, another kind of way of seeing aspects of the cold war and these kind of things through these, these characters, you know, yeah, they might have science, but they don't understand it. Right. And they just see it as this kind of, uh, uh, they treat it like a kind of sorcery or, you know, we're the real, the, the real rational, real rational scientific folks. And by uh, the end of the issue, uh, Doom is talking about, uh, he wants to quote, I shall still escape to find a new hidden site where I can plan for my conquest of Earth. That's ramping up the scales. Yes. Did you want the gems or did you want to actually conquer the Earth? If you want to conquer the Earth, what do you want to conquer the Earth for? (laughs) There is an answer to that, but we're not going to get that answer for decades. But he does have a rocket-powered flying harness. That's stronger than his flames. Yeah, it's stronger than Johnny's flames. So there have actually been three different versions of this story that we looked at Mm -hmm. for years. Um, There's uh, maybe we'll we'll touch on the last one next and then go back to uh, the the weirdest one. Uh, (laughs) The last one is one that appeared in the mid 2000s in a series called uh, Marvel Age Fantastic Four, because for some reason in the mid 2000s, Marvel got the idea that they could attract some younger readers by going back and having their the earliest Fantastic Four and Spider-Man comics rewritten and redrawn, preserving the stories just as they were, but kind of updated into a modern visual and verbal idiom. 
to the extent that you can turn a story from 1961, which has 18 months worth of story cramped into 23 pages like this one does, into a single issue of something in the early 2000s in kind of a, a light American quasi-manga style. What do you make of this? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I mean, this was not very good. Um, <laughs> I appreciate the thought. It's credited to Stanley and Jack Kirby for the plot. Mark Sumerak is the writer. And then uh, the artists are Udon's Dax Gordine with M3TH. That's the person's yeah. name, M3TH. I'll go with it. Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of plot points that are reproduced verbatim. Some mm -hmm. of them are changed a little bit. Like, you know, the thing is no longer reading a Hulk comic. Now the whole Fantastic Four is sitting in the Baxter building watching the Hulk on a DVD. Yeah, and talking about like the CGI or whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, it's very strange because like, I, I certainly, I mean, one of the things that's weird about it, um, and this is what I think like sort of worked about, say, Brian Bendis' Ultimate Spider-Man, right. which is like retelling a lot of those early stories, but with modern sensibility versus something like this is that you are taking a lot of the plot points on other characters and retelling them with the knowledge that a lot of people know some of the basic hits and basic points. Right. Whereas this is like, I don't know, like there's, again, there's still no Latveria. Yeah. <laughs> like there's still no, <laughs> they just kind of, like a lot of the things that we know about doom or other things just kind of go away and, yeah. but they just tell the story the same way. Yeah. Um, which is, which is strange because presumably somebody reading a story about the fantastic four in 2004 would know a little bit about them or have some sense of them. I mean, it could be somebody walking in totally blind, but these characters have been around for 2004, 62, 40 years plus at this point. Yeah. Well, so Ben feels sad, and then they make him happy, and then it's done. Um, right. And that was one thing that made me, uh, you know, sad. Is that, like, there was no room for Ben to be conflicted. Yeah. Um, um, or to act, or rather to act on that conflict. Um, yeah, but it, so in the scene where uh, he says, you know, I'm, I'm happier as Blackbeard, I'm, I, I could be somebody, they give him a one-panel pep talk, and yeah. he's like, oh, guys, and everything's cool again. Yeah, it's just, it's strange. Because there are certain things that you can shorthand when people have some basic familiarity with the characters. Um, and uh, and they choose not to shorthand any of those and instead to shorthand other things that pr probably could you could use to have a little bit more room to breathe um, that might be more interesting to current modern readers. The emotional beats, um, the character reveals. Um, and instead, it's just giant walls of text um, because that's what a 1962 comic looked like um, on contemporary art, uh, yeah. which does make you realize how weird it looks. It's not it's not very good. So now we come to uh, the, the uh, third version of the story, or rather the second one to be published. Uh, this appeared in Fantastic Four number 236 in uh, 1981, but actually was from a few years earlier. In 1978, there had been an animated Fantastic Four Saturday morning cartoon uh, 
which had had its storyboards done by Jack Kirby. And one episode of it was based on Fantastic Four number five. And so for this this uh, 20th anniversary issue of Fantastic Four, still only 20 years old at that point, astonishing to, to see, the backup feature was effectively the last Stanley Jack Kirby collaboration on Fantastic Four, which was Lee writing new dialogue for Kirby's storyboards for the animated adaptation of Fantastic Four number five into this TV show from three years earlier. Except there's something that's really missing from this one. Care to tell us what it is? <laughs> the fourth member of the team. Uh, <laughs> Explain. <laughs> what's, what's, so what's, who's missing? Oh... I mean, spoilers, because I sort of want people to go read it and just um, have the wild experience of being like, so when are we not going to talk about this? What's happening? Um, Johnny Storm doesn't show up anywhere. There's no human torch. There's just no human torch. Um, There is a helpful little robot. Herbie. um, Herbie. And I guess that's good enough. It's just just Uh, the same. For context here, the Fantastic Four animated show also did not have the Human Torch. Uh, the rumor that I always heard was that you know, it was because people were afraid that it might encourage kids to set themselves on fire if they saw the Human Torch. <laughs> not so. Uh, the, human, the Human Torch rights had been sold for TV to Universal. Not the rest of the team, just the Human Torch. Because they talked about, hey, they wanted to make a movie or a TV show or something. Never got made never got made but when it was time to sell some animation rights for the fantastic four they only had rights to three members of the team so for the fourth one we got herbie the robot what can you tell me about herbie the robot andrea he reminds me of like the 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 friendly robot in most 80s films yeah pretty much and um you know he's uh he kind of floats around mm-hmm. and he's uh, friendly, makes some quips. Uh, he notably does not set himself aflame and, and fly around. Um, no, at no point is he on fire. No, which I thought maybe might happen. Frankly, I didn't expect him to just literally fill in for Johnny the whole time. Um, including going back in the past and putting on a pirate costume. Like when he first shows up, you're like, oh, cool. Reed has a robot. That makes sense. Uh, of course, Reed has a robot. He's Reed Richards. Um, he has robots. But, but Doom uh, doesn't have a robot. We don't have a Doombot this, this one. Um, but uh, yeah, instead of Johnny being the quippy cute one, um, the, the robot is. And it's real weird. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, once just... again, like Doom doesn't really do anything especially wrong here. Uh, actually, that's not true. He does break a vase with flowers in it. Uh, that's um, that monster. Terrible. That <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah. Um, that's uh, is it better or worse than Forty Cakes being stolen? It's 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 terrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one interesting thing about this is that uh, it's inked by basically everybody who had ever inked Fantastic Four. I did get some moments of some good Kirby machinery here. Mm-hmm. We even get Lavarian. 
He tells the knight, I order you to follow me to my kingdom of Latveria. No harm will befall you at my hands. Yes. So, so this one is doing more of what you would expect the Marvel Age from 2004 to do. Right. Which is, people know a little bit about these characters, maybe not everything, but at least a little bit. So we're going to include and update some of those facts. Um, and he even Except for the whole, like, that there's actually a Johnny Storm thing. Um, he actually explains why he wants uh, the, the treasure of Blackbeard, which is to accumulate wealth to make his kingdom the most powerful on Earth. Which is what any good leader would do. From this, this first story, from these three versions of it, what do we make of Doom? Like what's, what's interesting about him? What makes him a character worthy of returning, if anything? A little bit about what I was, was thinking about is because, you know, when you think of superheroes and supervillains, mm-hmm. you try to think of the ways in which um, they tend to, to be foils, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. What, what do they stand for that is the opposite of um, their their villain of their superheroes, right? Because that's those tend to be the most um, the most memorable and the most fascinating and the longest lived. Because certainly every superhero has their rogues gallery um, with a million one shots uh, that are you know fascinating and fun and have cool designs go away. Um, but the ones that really stand the test of time tend to be the ones that um, tell us something interesting about the heroes as well. And usually because they either stand they stand in some sort of contrast and tell us something about them. Um, and it's difficult it's a little bit difficult of course to to um, to disentangle some of you know what I know what I continue to know about doom into into the future <laughs> yeah. from 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 these first appearances um, but trying to you know base it on on just the first appearance uh, yeah, a cool Cool character design never hurts. Um, you know the 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 Fantastic Four have a great design. It's very slick and clean. Um, it's um, there's not a lot going on. There's no capes. There's not um, a lot of patterns or anything, right? So it's very clean, slick. It's all matching, um, as opposed to this very heavy medieval um, knight in armor thing, including the mask. Um, he literally has like a tunic and he's in a castle. Um, so we do literally have this kind of, uh, the epitome of science and modern technology, um, against, uh, a kind of, uh, specter of the past. And that can bring up all kinds of thoughts about, um, rationality versus mysticism and all, you know. Uh, where what role emotions and that sort of things come into play um you don't but you don't see a lot of how that plays out in this first story um at all frankly um lots of really cool stuff gets done with that eventually and including unraveling (laughs) you know uh the idea of rationality as some ultimate good uh in the case of reed uh um or the extent to which you know science for science sake is you know necessarily also in in and of itself an ultimate good there are i think certainly interesting ways in which we could look at the kind of socio-political context of the time and ideas about um america and the u.s in its in its place and the ussr and what are sort of visions and maybe not russia itself but some of the kind of um 
smaller countries associated with Russia, um, or at least the, the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, these sort of, we think of, we thought of them as sort of backwards at the time and um, less scientific and uh, backwater and all those sorts of things. And yet we were terrified of them nuking us. <laughs> so this sort of, of this, uh, this, this, this sort of disconnect of like, uh, we are so ahead of you. We're so smart and, and important. Uh, you're so backwards, but also you can destroy us. And let's notice, uh, and that kind of um, cognitive dissonance um, that certainly um, is fascinating. And of course, the, the FF is already always sort of playing with this, these anxieties of this sort of Cold War time from the very beginning, right? Because it's like nuclear radiation and the space race that turns them into superheroes yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, and I think, you know, I think what makes Doom continue to be really interesting is the ways in which um, later writers will continue to, well, even Lee eventually, continue to play out with some of these ideas and and break down some of those dichotomies and sort of suss them out. Because, um, yeah, like, like you said, there's actually not a lot here besides, like, yeah. a cool costume, a kind of fun thing, yeah. and a fun story. A helicopter, a shark helicopter, and a vulture, which is pretty cool yep. too. Um, the the ideas that get played out later um, and pulled, the threads that get pulled, uh, become much more interesting. The fun thing that plays out is that, like, ultimately, Reed and 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 Doom, neither of them are particularly antagonists or um, protagonists in this greater story. It's sort of the people around them. And what side they happen to be on at the time that make their relationship and, and how they play in the universe really interesting. Thank you again, Dr. Andrea Gilroy. Next week, Dr. Osvaldo Oyola joins me to look at Dr. Doom's second appearance, Fantastic Four, number six. Voice of Latveria is made possible by my patrons. You can join them at patreon.com slash Douglas Wolk and know the favor of Doom. <laughs> Zero, zero, one. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, one. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies until you die.